Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been waiting to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I am joined once again by Alec and Patty Bianco. And we are here to wrap up Herodotus with a little Q&A and discussion uh, before we break for the holidays. How are you guys doing? Doing pretty well. Ready for Christmas. Awesome. Uh, just a reminder, there's still time to uh, donate to Cersei's end of the year giving campaign. The the, the support Cersei gets from from donors throughout the year uh, helps keep things like these podcasts going, uh, uh, as well as lots of other free and low-cost help for classical educators on the website, uh, from the blog to the intensives and everything else. So if you can, if it's... Uh, uh, in your budget to give a little bit this year at the end of the year, we uh, just ask that you consider donating some to Cersei. So thank you. Well, we wrapped up our last section of Herodotus book two last time. Um, the book that's kind of uh, all about Egypt. And so, yeah, we're here for a little, a little Q and a time before we get too far in, I want to share something. There's a scholar, a uh, mid 20th century working in, in Oxford and, Cambridge, uh, who unearthed a lost section of Herodotus. Uh, so I thought I'd share that with you guys before to kind of kick us off and then we can kind of maybe get into our Q&A a little bit. Interesting. So okay. uh, I'm not really sure which, you know, th- these books kind of flow into each other. You know, he, like we mentioned in this one, he goes from talking about, uh, I think it's uh, uh, one of the one of the Persian kings into into the into Egypt, and so uh, I'm not really sure where he's where this is picking up, but maybe and people read along uh, for other, getting to further into Herodotus, we would see where it might have fit. But uh, so it kind of starts off in Media Ray, obviously, like most of the most of the books of um, of Herodotus. But and it says it starts with uh, and beyond this, there lies in the ocean, turned towards the west and north, the island of Neatirb, which. Hecateus indeed declares to be the same size and shape as Sicily, but it is larger, though in calling it triangular, a man would not miss the mark. It is densely inhabited by men who wear clothes not very different from other barbarians who occupy the northwestern parts of Europe, though they do not agree with them in language. These islanders, surpassing all men of whom we know in patience and endurance, use the following customs. In the middle of winter, when fogs and rains most abound, they have a great festival, which they call Ixmas, or, and for 50 days they prepare for it in the fashion I shall describe. First of all, every citizen is obliged to send each, other, each of his friends and relations a square piece of hard paper stamped with a picture, which in their speech is called an Ixmas card. But the pictures represent birds sitting on branches or trees with a dark green prickly leaf, or else men in such garments as the Neoturbians believe that their ancestors wore 200 years ago riding in coaches such as their ancestors used, or houses with snow on their roofs. And the Neoturbians are unwilling to say what these pictures have to do with the festival, guarding, as I suppose, some sacred mystery. And because all men must send these cards, the marketplace is filled with the crowd of those buying them, so there's great labor and weariness. But having bought as many as they suppose to be sufficient, they return to their houses and find there the like cards which others have sent to them. 
And when they find cards from any to whom they have also sent cards, they throw them away and give thanks to the gods that this labor at least is over for another year. But when they find cards from any to whom they have not sent, then they beat their breasts and wail and utter curses against the sender. And having sufficiently lamented their misfortune, they put on their boots again and go out into the fog and rain and buy a card for him also. And let this account suffice about Xmas cards. They also send gifts to one another, suffering the same things about the gifts as about the cards, or even worse. For every citizen has to guess the value of the gift which every friend will send to him, so that he may send one of equal value, whether he can afford it or not. And they buy as gifts one another such things as no man ever bought for himself. For the sellers, understanding the custom, put forth all kinds of trumpery, and whatever, being useless and ridiculous, they have been unable to sell throughout the year, they now sell as an Xmas gift. And though the Neoturbians profess themselves to lack sufficient necessary things, such as metal, leather, wood, and paper, yet an incredible quantity of these things is wasted every year being made into the gifts. But during these 50 days, the oldest, poorest, and most miserable of the citizens put on false beards and red robes and walk about the marketplace, being disguised, in my opinion, as Kronos. And the sellers of gifts no less than the purchasers become pale and weary because of the crowds and the fog, so that any man who came into Neoturbian Neotir, city at this season would think some great public calamity had fallen on Neoturb. This 50 days of preparation is called, in their barbarian speech, the Exmus Rush. But when the day of the festival comes, then most of the citizens, being exhausted with the rush, lie in bed until till noon. But in the evening they eat five times as much supper as on, an, on other days. Crowning themselves with crowns of paper, they become intoxicated. And on the day after Xmas, they are very grave, being internally disordered by the supper and the drinking, and reckoning how much they have spent on gifts and on the wine. For wine is so dear among the Neoturbians that a man must swallow the worth of a talent before he is well intoxicated. Such then are their customs about Xmas. But the few among the Neoturbians have also a festival, separate into it themselves, called Christmas, which is on the same day as Xmas. And those who keep Christmas doing the opposite to the majority of Neoturbians rise early on that day with shining faces and go before sunrise to certain temples where they partake of a sacred feast. And in most of the temples, they set out images of a fair woman with a newborn child on her knees and certain animals and shepherds adoring the child. The reason of these images is given in a certain sacred story, which I know but do not repeat. But I myself conversed with a priest in one of these temples and asked him why they kept Christmas on the same day as Xmas. For it appeared to me so inconvenient. But the priest replied, It is not lawful, O stranger, for us to change the date of Christmas. But would that Zeus would put into the minds of the Neoturbians to keep Xmas on some other time, or not to keep it at all. For Xmas and the Rush distract the minds even of the few from sacred things. And we indeed are glad that men should make merry at Christmas. But in Xmas, there is no merriment left. And when I asked him why they endured the, the rouche, he replied, It is, O stranger, a racket. Using, as I suppose, the word of some oracle and speaking unintelligibly to me, for a racket is an instrument which the barbarians use in a game called tennis.
But what Hecateus, uh, but what Hecateus says that Xmas and Christmas are the same is not credible. For first, the pictures which are stamped on the Xmas cards have nothing to do with the sacred story which the priests tell about Christmas. And secondly, the most part of the Neotirbians, not believing the religion of the few, nevertheless send the gifts and cards and participate in the ruche and drink, wearing paper caps. But it is not likely that men, even being barbarians, should suffer so many and great things in honor of a god they do not believe in. And now, enough about Neotirb. Fascinating stuff. I'm guessing past the Egyptians, but, you know. A little bit, yeah. Maybe. <laughs> they have the marketplace, though. Yes. If you want to look this up yourself at home, it's from a scholar from the mid-20th century named Clive, I think. So, uh, you know, you can look into that yourself. It's amazing. Amazing stuff. The Neoterbians, is that how you said it? They sound awfully familiar to Americans, like same practices. I was just lamenting, beating my breast the other day that I got a Christmas card <laughs> that I needed to. Yeah. Uh, Herontis, in this case, seems to be one. pretty down on the drinking and the merriment. Um, one might call him a little bit of a curmudgeon, but. All right. So, Patty, one of the things you like to ask, and I think is good for us to come back to, um, especially when reading Herodotus, is now that we're two books in, what what do you think about when you how you would um, teach Herodotus? Yeah, I think we when we finished when we wrapped up book one, I think we talked about this too, and I remember saying that I like the geography aspect of it. That mm -hmm. you know you could get the map out, and especially because this is so focused on Egypt and the Nile, right? Really understanding that whole section, maybe even um, you could plot out where where they, I saw a map the other day of where they even got some of the precious metals, right? That they would um, trade for things. Mm -hmm. So that would be fun. Like just looking at the Nile and the different gnomes, mapping all those out. Um, yeah, I think, there's lots of ways that you could teach the histories. What do, what do you guys think? Alex? Read it. <laughs> I mean, kind of seriously. Nobody reads Herodotus anymore. Um, there's a reason it's on overdue classics. <laughs> we just don't read. I, I mean, it's... I, I couldn't tell you how many times over the course of doing this podcast, so just the last you know couple mon months or whatever, that scrolling on social media, I saw people say things that I was like, oh, I just read that in Herodotus. If I uh -huh. ask a question, I'm like, oh, that's in Herodotus. Uh-huh. You know, one of them was like the dumb Egyptian temp uh pyramid thing. Clearly, this can't have been built, built by people, aliens must have built it. Yeah. It's like it's in Herodotus. He explains that. And I literally I, saw there's other things I can't remember, but yeah. I saw one literally last week. There was, how do you think they lifted the stones? Like, not how they got them there, but like how they lifted them. I was like, I, and I, I posted, you need to read Herodotus. Mm -hmm. Like, he, there's a crane. They like, he literally tells you what they were, what they were using. Yeah, it's so weird. Um, so we have this extreme disconnect with history, the way I think it's like, like the way we think about history has been so dominated by a, a sort of post-enlightenment mm -hmm. way of studying it. 
and even that, like the funny Lewis essay that you just wrote, what or just read, excuse me, was apparently that in the you know mid eighteen hundreds to you know early nineteen hundreds, there's tons of these. The students in England at Eton and some of these other places would write these Herodotus fragments, quote unquote Herodotus fragments. Um, as exercises in their Greek studies. And it's just, well, one, it would be cool to do that. Going back to teaching Herodotus, it'd be cool to do that, um, to assign that to students. Like, tell me a story about, you know, whatever the subject is in the style of Herodotus and tell me the history. Yeah. You know, tell me your, tell me a story about your grandfather in the style of Herodotus. Or your the home your childhood home or something like that. So you know it's one it's a writing exercise. Two, it's a history because it forces the way Herodotus writes forces you to think about history in a human centric way that's so much more beautiful and more I think invigorating for the students' education than the names and dates and places format that we're so used to that history becomes this sort of when you know set when you separate um the history of certain people and places from their religious practices right i mean how often do we talk about that uh the venerable Bede does in his ecclesiastical history of the english people uh, he writes in the style of Herodotus, uh, and it's really beautiful because mm -hmm. he's not afraid to talk about, I mean, part of it is it's the ecclesiastical history. So of course he's talking about the church. Um, but nonetheless, it's, he doesn't make this huge distinction between, you know, secular matters and sacred matters. If that is the, the history of a people, but we don't do that. We, um, we think of history as a purely secular discipline. And Herodotus wasn't doing that because who were the Egyptians without their strange customs? And who were the Greeks without their gods? You know, you have to know that stuff. So I mean, just a part of it, but it's like we should be studying Herodotus primarily because it'll help fix our brains <laughs> from the rational rot that has come from the enlightenment and our inability to look at our own past with any kind of grace or um human understanding yeah it, that narrative um like learning how to, to, to tell history narratively i think is so so important and and it's something we can learn even like I don't know. I, I was just a guy at church the other day was asking me, uh, he had heard Kobe and I talking, I guess, about tripartite soul stuff and whatever. And, and I was trying to like say, you know, the word noose, the Plato uses it, but then the church fathers pick it up and they change it a little bit. They, they use it a little bit differently. But I was hesitant to even say to him, it, you know, translates to mind. Cause then I had to like explain to him, but not the way we think of mind. We think of mind as brain, which is cold and rational and calculating. For them, it would have mean that they would use it the same way. Almost, we use oftentimes use heart, or there would be, be some overlap, right? We say you know something by heart, um, and they would have thought things about the same way. And it's 
it's that same idea, right? That we do, we, we, we were so fragmented and separated. So helping them, helping students to be able to tell history in a narrative way. There's a great teacher here who, um, he's, um, he's, a part, um, his hair, hair heritage is partly the, the, the Lumiere tribe, which is like up near like the Washington Canada border. And, um, before he taught here, he taught like on there in, in the Indian schools and stuff. And he helped actually, he helped them actually create a written language for the Lumi because they didn't really have, have one. So they could capture more of their stories that were good. But this is how he was taught to teach history. Like this is, this is something that's still practiced within the native American cultures in, in the United States, this kind of oral history. Um, and being able to go back and like, you talk to somebody that you're part of the tribe by saying, I'm so-and-so son, so-and-so son, so-and-so. And like, they, they, they have this kind of, connection to that still that's been mostly lost i think for a lot of post-enlightenment west um and so it's cool to talk to him he's a history teacher here like he tries to he wants his students to be able to go home and like tell the story of what they talked about in history class to his parent their parent without that the textbook you know i mean that's that's his goal for that's his homework for them a lot of times so it's been cool to talk to him especially as someone who has a history degree and never heard of, I think I've mentioned this before, never heard of Herodotus my whole undergrad, which is insane, right? That just tells you how far we've, we've come away from it. But it strikes me that I, so I didn't realize the history that what you were saying, that this is something that was done. Like this is something they, they made students do with these Herodotus passages. Um, but if you don't have a good knowledge of Herodotus, at least passing, you wouldn't even get the humor in, in what Lewis did, right? Like, because he's 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 making the style like it's in a sacred story which I will not recount here. Like we've joked about that, right? Where he like doesn't yeah. he doesn't tell you all the information. So I that's think what was great is that he he found the perfect form. Like Lewis embodied that right that Herodotus's form, and so if you've read Herodotus. You do get the, all those little jabs that he points out. Like it's a sacred story that yeah. I will not recount it here. And <laughs> I know this is a practice that um, our friend Andrew Prudoa with uh, IEW does in their in their writing. Some of the writing exercises, are, but they they I think they primarily do it with like um, narrative fiction literature. But he'll. Uh, and I think I remember him talking about it. Kind of grew out of students going like, "Oh, no one talks like that" when they would read like Jane Austen or somebody uh, Dickens, like, you know, Dickens has these long sentences and he's like, that's just, no one, no one talks about that. He's like, okay, try writing like that. Just, it's fine. You don't have to like it, but try it. Try it, write two pages in that style. It's not as easy as you like, you know, cause they were thinking it was a weakness in the writing or whatever. And he would tell them to, and I think it's baked into their program now. So it's interesting to think about doing that with history, with ancient history in particular, the way it's written. Um, no, yeah, it's that. like finishing a chapter, like you take your favorite novel and then add like maybe a different ending, a conclusion mm -hmm. or add a chapter to that book. So that that's kind of a fun exercise of just doing that same style. Yeah, I, th I think it's um, I mean, Cersei does a little bit in the apprenticeship, right, where we where we have to try actually writing a dialogue to, to work mm -hmm. out an idea. Um, you know, it's just a it's a format we're not used to. And so I think doing that with these histories is a good idea with students. Um, okay. So book one, Persians, book two, Egyptians. Um, he seems pretty high on the Egyptians thoughts on, you know, why, why do you think Herodotus is, uh, for a Greek audience so high on the Egyptians and, and singing their praises at this, 
juncture when he's writing. Well, I I wonder if it's just he mentioned several times that they were the first to do things. So maybe there's a uh, appreciation for just how much they have developed over time, how how civilized, right, they've become compared to the Persians. Um, you know, we read about the Persians and the barbarians and some of their customs and traditions, and it seems like the Egyptians are ones that wanted to set kingdoms that would last. Hmm. It's Yeah, it's interesting. He seems to view the Persians, not completely, but more the way we would view, like, barbarians, you know, like this invading horde to some extent where what struck me the most about with the Egypt is that he, he seems to really want to tie their gods to the Greek gods. Like that this is the same God, like they just have a different name for them, which is, um, it's interesting. It, I don't know, it's just interesting because I think you had localizations of gods uh, and they even viewed them differently. Sometimes if they're even if they're using the same name around the Mediterranean, but he really wants to have this continuity with the Egyptian gods into the Greek gods, um, which we see later picked up to some extent uh, in Rome. Right, the Romans really want to, to some extent, want to keep that continuity going. Um, that that to me is kind of fascinating. That 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 I wonder if it's if it's a way of. Like you said, he, Egypt, he sees they did it first. They have these long kingdoms. It's long lasting. If there's some impulse toward legitimizing the, the current culture, right? So he, the legitimizing Greeks as kind of the uh, the next great empire the, or the next great peoples. Um, and then the Romans would then follow on that later on. It's just, I mean, that's just, that's all speculation. Obviously, that would be after Herodotus' time, but... Um, I think that, I don't know, that's just kind of a human impulse to tie yourself. We still do it, right? Like we tie ourselves to the great things of the past to legitimize what we're doing now. That was the only thought I had on it. It's really interesting from both Herodotus, but Homer and uh, Virgil and some of the other ancient writers, Roman, Greek, and whatnot, how just deeply connected all of these peoples are. Mm. And I mean, like the Romans and the Greeks, we sort of know how closely connected they are, like you said. But even the fact that the Egyptians and the Greeks are so closely connected, and that's not something that's talked about today very often. Right. Um, but for Herodotus, they clearly were. And, and he makes that, I mean, he makes that clear. Herodotus makes it clear how closely they were even sharing some um, cultural practices and whatnot. And I mean, I'm not an Egyptologist by any means, <laughs> um, <laughs> but what I do understand of Egyptology, which is a funny uh, subject area. Um, I saw somebody make a joke that um the counterpart to Egyptology for Greece is just called classical education. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's funny. And uh, it's so true though. Um, but I, so what I do know of Egyptology is I don't know a lot of connections between Greeks and Egyptians. They keep them very separate. 
um, as peoples. And to a certain degree, there's, I, I don't know what it's like today. I don't know what the Egyptians, how they view themselves um, compared to the Greeks, but there is some shared, you know, even to this day, like the, the Coptic Christianity in Egypt mm -hmm. is very similar to the Greek Christianity that's in Greece. Um, and even if you look at like certain islands around in the Mediterranean or even around Italy, like Sardinia and some other places, um, there's these very old connections and cultural practices and ideas that when now, you know, reading Herodotus, I'm like, oh my goodness, that makes so much sense. Like there's this, all yeah. these peoples, the middle, in the Middle East to the Mediterranean, even North Egypt or North Africa, even as far into like the British Isles, you know, mm -hmm. they're all moving this way. Virgil's obviously telling that story, um, but they come from Troy, right? Which is over in, I guess, somewhere in the Middle East what they say but somewhere in the mediterranean mm -hmm. and um anatolia maybe and it's uh i don't know it's just really really interesting how connected deeply connected these cultures are even to this day that is interesting so you brought this up earlier with um talking about the post-enlightenment kind of view of history and i think maybe that's why for us it's so segmented like we have egyptology and we want to separate it and it's got its own wing in the museum and it's its own separate thing completely from the greeks and the romans and the you know we barely let the we kind of let the greeks and the romans overlap but only because it's like more i don't know it feels more directly european or something for some reason even though it's not really not really it's, it's all mediterranean um but yeah i mean it, you mentioned the Coptic churches and the and the Greek churches, um, and I think certainly some of this gets a little bit washed away when when Egypt itself is um, conquered by what are essentially Muslim Arab Arab people groups. Uh, I mean, most people in Egypt now are Muslim Arab descent, um, which probably wasn't true at Herodotus' time. I mean, well, obviously they weren't Muslim at Herodotus' time, um, and so there's there's a weird kind of overlapping the blend of those two things. So they still like to connect themselves with ancient Egypt. Um, um, but then you have these pockets of, like you said, Coptic Christians who, who wouldn't be part of that necessarily. And you have um, other people groups. I mean, I, I had a guy I was friends with from that. His parents were Iranian, but they were not most, they left because they were basically, they had been Zoroastrian or whatever, before, like Persian, they were like Persian, Persian. Um, and so, and this kind of came up even when we were discussing um, uh, Gilgamesh several months back, uh, Matt and Andrea and I, that, oh, there's so much overlap with us. We're seeing in that when you're seeing a lot with kind of what we know from ancient Israeli, uh, ancient Israel and that culture and that they were surrounded by, obviously, and the people groups are surrounded by. But um, uh, yeah, I think maybe it's a discomfort with it being kind of a Mediterranean thing, which is this kind of weird overlap of kind of Southern Western, Southern Eastern Europe, but then also Northern Africa. And like, I don't know, it's not, it's not the dominant culture of what came to be dominant and with, with more Western Europe and Northern Europe. 
or as we started separating those things out. But I think it probably has more to do with what you talked about earlier, the the kind of scientification of history where we're we're going to dice slice it and dice it. Um, and even the kind of you said them remove the religions, like separate the try to separate the things out the way they are separated in our culture. We have the secular part of Egypt and the religious part of Egypt. Like that was just not a thing, right? That's just not real. Um, which you can see when you read Herodotus, those things were so one of the same. Um, that's interesting. Uh, yeah, so it would make more sense for Herodotus to see all these things as tied together, and maybe the per the 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 kind of the Persians is becoming from over the mountains, being a little more outside of that, but. Um, but he sees this Mediterranean culture is very, very connected. So that's interesting. Mediterranean, Northern Africa, you know, all that, the trade routes, right? Where they, where they, where they were. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to go too philosophical here. Um, but there's something interesting. There's this Romanian philosopher that, I like some of his work, and I cannot remember his name, nor would I be able to pronounce it. Um, <laughs> Romanian is a funny, interesting language. Talk about weird cultures. An Eastern European culture, Balkan, with uh, Latin language roots. Really interesting. But anyways, one of the things that he talks about is this idea of sacred time and secular time, and how our culture today is completely dominated by secular time mm. and that time itself is demarcated by work so that our holidays are breaks from work mm. and that otherwise time is based on work yeah. and you know it's you know apropos the christmas time that we're in that's very much true Right. We think of Christmas and I mean, I mean, even the fact that like most companies, you know, all you're going to get is Christmas Eve and Christmas Day off. Right. Wish. And then back to work. You got to take the rest. Of, you got to take the rest of it as a holiday yourself. <laughs> yeah. Right. You have to use your PTO or, you know, whatever. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's just very normal. Um, and we don't even bat an eye at it. Why? Because we are secular people. We think yeah. we, our, our time is secular. And what he's talking about is this idea of sacred time as something that to think about time in that way. And so holidays become truly holy days mm. and that our time is, it's not work that's interrupted by time off. It's actually seasons of feasting and fasting that are cyclical in nature and coming around, right? So the, even the, the eight week cycle that Christ implemented, you know, we celebrate on the eighth day, um, his resurrection, but you know, every seven days there's a, the resurrection of Christ is that sort of idea of sacred time rather than thinking just of, as Sunday as a day off of work. Um, and anyways, I was thinking about that with Herodotus and how, like when he's, especially book two, when he's really, digging into the Egyptian culture, how little he talks about work, mm. like their jobs. And then even when he does, like I think the last reading we did, he talks about them, their jobs in relation to their status. Yeah, yeah. Culturally, and, and to some degree, I might say, sacredly, right? The, the soldier is, and the priests are given the primary roles within the society. Yeah. 
roles, the value of which comes not from their output, but because of their sacredness, the honor right. that we bestow to them. So again, he's he's thinking of everything in a in sacred time, um, which is very very different than the way we think. Yeah. Even the lower roles are roles within a strata, but that but they serve a purpose of the society and all the purpose we've been given the whole in this whole book of on the Egyptians has been around the sacred stuff, right? And so he gives us all those classes of workers, but uh, uh, but they're a, they're a class in the sense that it's it's part of a a unified whole, you know which we don't ever think about that way at all. So, I was wondering about that with the section of the Xmas and Christmas, where he talks about the, I can't remember if it, the exact wording, desolate or poor, but he puts on the red suit and he said it, it's more like Kronos. Yeah. So I was wondering if that was um, that time, right? At the time, not sacred and, and set, apart for religion but that distraction i guess they called it later right the priest called it um from christmas yeah and we have to acknowledge that lewis is a bit of a curmudgeon i mean <laughs> it comes out and if you read some other excerpts from that set of essays like he's yeah a bit of a curmudgeon when it comes to this kind of stuff um you know if you want the antidote, you can go read the stuff that that Josh Gibbs has been posting on the on the blog yeah. lately about like, no, we need as much celebration as possible. Like, just let, let it. We don't celebrate anything else, so let's just make it be a time. You can go see Josh's antidote to, to Lewis here, but um, but he's he's making a distinction where he is about only people only doing the secular celebration and then not making the time for the to be at church and to, and I think that's a fair criticism, especially in his time. In, in England um, at the time. So, um, but yeah, it's, it, this was a big shift for us when we got into classical education, like th thinking about time the way you're talking or starting to Alec, you know, that I mean, our, our year had been around the work schedule and the school schedule. Like that was it. Right. And, and as we moved into classical education and we started learning about church history and the church calendar and, you know, um, Pick a church calendar, whichever whichever tradition you are. A lot of them, a lot of them have an actual church calendar, um, especially the more traditional ones. But that wasn't what we were coming from, and so um, just think about your year in a different way, right? To, I was like, this is you know, or even ag an agricultural one was 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 less was less work oriented as much as it was just life oriented. Like you're just trying to keep yourself sustained, right? And so it. I I'm curious about this the research you're talking about because I've as I get older I've noticed myself trying to make like little adjustments in this I and mean, you talked about work time versus sacred time and then you know you can think about it in, in Kronos versus Kairos and all those things right but I um I literally literally think about this Tuesday morning I was I was at church and I was serving or whatever in the altar and I whenever I'm back there I take off my watch and my phone. I mean, because you have stuff on anyway. So, and I put them somewhere where I can't see them. And there's a clock back there somewhere, but I try my best to like not even look at the clock. Because I, when I'm there, when I'm doing that, when I'm doing church, I want to be purposely on Kairos time and not Kronos time when, when, whenever possible. And it's just like a little discipline for myself because I've 
I know I'm undisciplined. If I have my watch, I'll be looking at it. If I have my phone in my pocket, I'll be looking at it. Um, so I have to like physically remove them from me. But um, so this is not this is not a brand that is great. This is a brand that needs very strict discipline to, to be even a little bit better. Um, but it makes a huge difference, and I'm more present in the motion in the moment, and I'm um, and I think there's something to learn uh, about that. Uh, from Herodotus too, like he's present where he is and he's paying attention to what they're paying attention to. But it's a lesson for us as we've gotten so far away from that culturally um, to maybe find ways to get back to it. All right. Well, we are going to take a, we'll take a break from Herodotus, but um, book three would be next. Is there, is there anything that you're looking forward to in book three, either of you or questions you have going into book three? I don't know. I do. I'm pretty sure book three is really good though. Yeah. I don't, I've never read Herotis, which like I said, is a tragedy. Um, it's a true overdue classic for me. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do know that book three, I think bring, brings one and two together, which I didn't know was going to be the pattern. Uh, I thought it was going to move on to another people group, but I think we're about to get where we left off in one, which was, um, What's his name was about the Kim, uh, Kimbesis, the Persian king, was about to attack Egypt. That's what I think where we pick back up. Now that we've kind of gotten Egypt's history, we're going to pick up on that war, I guess. Um, so that's kind of cool. I didn't, I wasn't, so I'm like, that's kind of cool that he kind of background, background, and then kind of bring the story back together. So be interesting to see what that looks like. Yeah, I wonder if there'll be more stories. I hadn't heard that account, the different account of Helen and Paris. Mm. So that was kind of fun from book two to hear that. And then possibly maybe we have more of that overlap, you know, that like Alex said, it we don't really have as much with the Egypt, but I seem to have more with the least knowledge of the Greek and Roman overlap than I do mm. with the Egypt and the Persians. And so maybe we'll hear more about that in book three as well. Not yeah, Helen we, specifically, but other stories like yeah, like that. Interesting to see if we get some other versions of stories we kind of know a little bit, yeah, from other sources. That is cool. Yeah, I'm looking forward to. I'm looking forward to seeing what happens next, especially if there's going to be if we're going to move a little bit away from kind of background information to battles. It's kind of fun. So well, cool. Uh, if any of you are interested in looking for that piece by Lewis, it is a part of a book of essays that I'm pretty sure was published posthumously called, and I'm not going to be able to find it. I had it in front of me and now I can't. Do you remember what it was, Alex? Let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, but it's it's a uh, God in the Dock. That's what it is. God in the Dock, which maybe it wasn't posthumous, but it was late. These are older essays that were published later Um and it's got several in there. Um, and some of them kind of tied together. Anyway, it's a, it's a fun little book. Um, it's got a bunch of these little essays in it. So, all right. Any plans, any big plans for you guys for the holidays? They're all, are you staying nestled in North Carolina? We'll have a talent of wine. <laughs> Excellent. 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 Rush. Rush. Yeah. I like it. All right. Well, yeah, we're hanging around here and, um, We'll take a little break. Uh, I am not sure what book is up next, but we will get that out to the to the folks. We'll take a little break for Christmas and and come back at some point in January uh, with whatever's next. So, and whoever's next on the show. <laughs> so, nothing has been decided. All right, 
Well, thank you all for joining us. Um, I hope that you'll enjoy your holidays. I hope that you've been enjoying Herodotus. Join us back in January when we pick up with, with our next book. You can send questions, comments, suggestions uh, into podcast at searchinginstitute.org. And be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network.